0: The scripture this morning is from the book of Luke, chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. Hear the word of the Lord. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him, and Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you again. Uh, how many of you will admit that it was great having a weekend off with Stump? It was fun, I got to admit, but uh, I also have to admit that then uh, I got here this morning and I felt like it's been way too long since I've been here with y'all. So it's uh, good to be back, and I hope you feel the same way. Um, We are continuing a series that Peter started for us last week called Family Matters, and it's about the church and how the church matters, and it matters uh, being part of this uh, family. When we become members of Stonebridge, and other churches in our denomination do the same thing, uh, we take five vows. And so to continue this series, we're going to take one each uh, for each of the next five Sundays and unpack what they mean. Talk about what they mean uh, to consider what it means to be part of the Lord's church. And so today we're going to look at the uh, first one, and I dare say the most popular one, since it has to do with uh, sin, And it, in fact, someone said to me, uh, Doug, you must have been picked to preach the one on sin because you're such an expert at it. (laughs) Uh, I don't know. But anyway, but here's the vow. And this is what we say when we become members here. Do you acknowledge yourselves to be sinners in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure and without hope, save in his sovereign mercy? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how we thank you for the great privilege we have of being part of your family. There's a real sense, we know, that when we become uh, followers of Christ, that, Lord, we are adopted into your family as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And yet we're also brought into this larger family that we call church. And so we thank you for all of that and pray that uh, today and in the next several weeks uh, we would come to understand that uh, all the more and apply it all the more and revel in it all the more. Be with us now as we uh, look at your word and its application to our lives in Christ's name. Amen. You know, there's so much in life that you don't want to look at. I find myself being in that kind of position all the time. Uh, For instance, I saw a a movie recently with some good friends, Hacksaw Ridge. Now, Hacksaw Ridge is really a good movie, but um, and it's a cool story. It's uh, about a Christian young man and some awesome things he does. But it takes place in the Pacific theater of World War II, and its battle scenes are more than bloody. (laughs) It's pretty uh, grody, actually, at times. And uh, I have a strategy, though, when I find myself in a situation like that. uh, When I'm looking at the movie screen, like, say, that screen, I'll look at the bottom right corner. That way I can get the gist of what's going on on the screen without throwing up. I figure that's important, especially if I'm in a theater. So there's certain things in life you just don't want to look at. But there's other things that as much as you don't want to look at them, you know you really need to. Uh, For instance, my father uh, started having physical pains, uh, all different parts of his body. But he didn't want to look at what that might mean, and so he kept ignoring it, hoping it would go away. When he finally stopped ignoring it and went to the doctor, he found out that he had cancer and that he had it in his liver and his lung and his brain by that point. And he didn't live through the rest of the year. Didn't want to look at it, and so he didn't. And as much as that's true for physical pains that we have to look at it, it's even more true for the spiritual pains that we have in life. Now, you might be saying, what on earth are spiritual pains? Well, I think you know really what I mean. They're the strained relationships that we have, the fears, the anger that we experience, the lust, the dissatisfaction with life as we find it. They're all trying to tell us something. They're all trying to tell us there's something wrong with this world, but even more than that, they're trying to tell each one of us something, that we have a case, a terminal case of sin. A terminal case of sin. So there I've said it, sin, that most popular, or actually most unpopular word in our culture, isn't it? Just to, Do you ever say even that word out in public? You don't probably, do you? Because you know that as soon as you say that word, people are going to think you're a negative Nancy, uh, that you're stuck in religion. And we all know that religion is so last millennia. We've got to get over this stuff, right? But acknowledging yourselves to be sinners is not giving into the power of negative thinking like so many think. Actually, it's the escape hatch out of the despair and misery of this life into the hope and love and joy and peace that God offers us. Now, I'm not going to go there too quickly because uh, uh, we're going to get there later, but first we need to really consider sin and not move too fast because it's a negative word because sin is negative. Sin is awful, and we need to be more and more convinced of that. Sin is the destroyer of human happiness, sin robs God of His glory. Sin is the core explanation for all the social ills there are out there, whether it's terrorism or abortion or the drug trade or child abuse or insider trading, you name it. Listen to this quote from J.C. Ryle in his book, Holiness. Sin is our enemy, he's telling us. Sin will rarely present itself to us in its true color, saying, I'm your deadly enemy, and I want to ruin you forever in hell. Oh, no. Sin comes to us like Judas with a kiss. In other words, it comes as in disguise. It says that this is going to make you happy. This is going to be fun. You should indulge in this when really it's going to ruin us. Maybe not right away, but it will in the long run. And even as God said to Cain so long ago, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. In other words, the picture is sin is a predator seeking to devour us, each one of us, and to gobble us up. So all these are descriptions of what sin is, but what actually is sin? What's a, what would a definition of sin be? Now, our Westminster Standards, uh, the uh, theological beliefs of our, uh, this church and our, our denomination, uh, define sin this way. This is from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And uh, you know it's that old English kind of stuff. Uh, uh, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. It might seem an odd way to put it. But we get what it's saying, don't we? And it's true. That is what sin is. <laughs> but honestly, I don't think it goes far enough. Our presbytery clerk is here today, so I hope I'm not going to be brought up on charges, Kevin. But, but it really doesn't go far enough. Sin is far worse than that because it is personal. It's a personal rejection on our part of a personal God. It's living a life that refuses, as Romans 121 says, although they knew God... And he's talking about humanity here. It's not a problem of information, you see. They knew God. Although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. It's this refusal to give God the place he deserves. It is basically, again, a personal rejection of the personal God. We're called to give him glory and to thank him and to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we don't. And as unpleasant as it is to look at sin in this broad, generic way, what's really bad is to look at sin in my life and sin in your life, to get specific. <laughs> as now, now we're meddling, right? Um, but that is what's really tough. And so um, I, would anyone like to give an example of sin in your life? Anybody? No, I, I don't see that hand. Uh, so I guess I'll give an example. Uh, for me, by the way. <laughs> uh, in fact, I was reminded recently of my mother's anemic financial situation. Uh, And she's in that financial situation largely due to decisions my father made uh, years ago. While his decisions made things easier financially for them while he was still around, while he was alive, uh, since he's gone, it's been harder for mom. I won't get into all sorts of details, but that's the situation. And since it's been made harder for mom, financially speaking, as, his, as her and his only child, it's made it harder for me, too, as the one taking care of her. Now, of course, I handled that with all grace and understanding and aplomb as a Christian, right? Eh, no, I didn't. The all-too-familiar root of bitterness that I sometimes have for my dad sprang up again, and there it was. And what's really bad is not only the specific things that we do, but what, as the movie title says, what lies beneath. The sin behind the sin, the heart attitude behind it. Why all that bitterness? Unfulfilled revenge, maybe? Laziness as far as taking care of my mom? Trying to shirk responsibility, maybe? Well, to go even deeper and make it even worse, whatever it is, (laughs) take your pick, The most fundamental problem of all really was that I was not giving God the place he deserves in my life in this situation. Because if I did and if I wanted to honor God, I would be honoring my father and mother. And I wasn't. If I wanted to give God the place he has in my life, I would be forgiving my dad if that was necessary even. But I certainly wouldn't be giving any place to bitterness, which scripture calls us not to do. So there I am, you know. And I did this thing and what was underneath it and what it said about my relationship with God. And the worst thing of all is that God sees every bit of it. I can hide that from you until today, and now you know. But he knew it from the moment I I went there. And as uh, Hebrews 4.13 says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him, and here's the chilling part, to whom we must give account. So what's true of me is also true of each one of us here in the room today. And everybody that is alive now ever has lived and ever will. We're in a scary, scary position. All of our sin is there. God has seen it. Whether we acknowledge it or not, it's there and he sees it. And what is he going to do about it? He's a holy God. He's a just God. He must punish sin. What is he going to do about that? Well, here's just a few things that he offers, and this isn't all of it, but it's some. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. In other words, those of us who have sinned, who have rejected God in so many specific ways, he comes and says, it can all be forgiven. Come, let's reason this out. And not only that, He takes the penalty and places it upon himself. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way. There's the confession part. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The penalty I deserve for having rejected this wonderful, glorious, awesome, loving, generous, merciful God has been put upon Christ. That's what Christmas is all about. It's that God himself came to become one of us that he might take that penalty for us. Why would he do that? I don't understand it. I've rejected him, and yet he's doing this for me? I can understand it if I was all loving and sweet and wonderful, but I'm not. And not only that, as Peter said, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the cross, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. In other words, it's not just that he'll say, okay, uh, I'm going to take the penalty and then you're going to die and just vanish into the ether. I want to have a relationship with you. Again, I don't understand it. We've rejected him. We've run the other way and he is pursuing us and he wants to be in relationship with us and to love us. Then you go back to Levi, uh, back to Luke that we looked at earlier. And Jesus is speaking there. Remember, he calls Levi out of the tax booth, and he says, follow me, and Levi does. But he's a tax collector. He's one of the worst, quote-unquote, of uh, the sinners in that culture, in that time, so they thought. And so the Pharisees are all upset. Why is Jesus hanging around this? And you can imagine them doing the air quotes, sinner. Jesus says, in response to that, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the, and I'm sure Jesus used air quotes here. I don't know that for sure, by the way, but it just seems like it would be so appropriate. I have not come to call the righteous, catch the dripping sarcasm there, who would say that they're righteous? I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So then, folks, the question each one of us have to ask ourselves is, did Jesus come for you? if you claim to be that you're righteous and there's nothing wrong with me and I'm all perfectly good and everything, then Jesus says here, he did not come for you. Christmas has nothing to do with you. He came for sinners like me. Did he come for you? That's a question every one of us have to ask. And I hope that you say, yes, amen, I do acknowledge <laughs> that I am a sinner justly deserving his pleasure, save his sovereign mercy and theirs His sovereign mercy. So again, acknowledging that we're sinners is not a negative thing, it's that escape hatch out of the misery that we've caused for ourselves by rejecting God and being brought into his love into this heavenly relationship with the most wonderful one who's ever lived, Jesus Christ. Now, this has meaning for us individually, of course. I pray that each one of us here have already taken that step of acknowledging our sin and looking to Christ to forgive us based on him taking that penalty for us on the cross and trusting in that for salvation. So that has meaning for each one of us individually, for sure, but it also has significance for us as a church family. Again, remember this sermon series is about the church. Family matters. This has impact for us too. And uh, to get it, how that is so, I want to tell a little bit of a story, a true story, about um, Alan Mulally, who uh, became the CEO of Ford Motor Company back in 2006. Uh, he had been at Boeing, and now he came to uh, Ford Motor Company to be its CEO. And uh, 10 years ago, in 2006, Ford was on the edge of bankruptcy. It was about to go under. When he took the job, they were expecting to have a loss that year of $12 billion. I didn't say million, $12 billion. I mean, that sounds like the federal government. And this is a private company, family-owned, no less. And, but he took the job on. So he took the job on, and he knew he had his work cut out for him from the beginning, of course. But even on his first day, he was kind of puzzled because uh, he, he flew into town, and a Ford representative came and picked him up. Not in a Ford, but a Land Rover. It's like, this is Ford, right? And, you know, it's a Land Then he gets to the executive parking deck, and there's not many Fords there either. He's like, what's wrong with this picture? But he really knew he was in trouble when he started having weekly meetings with the executives of all the major departments. And he made sure that they were there, not representatives, those people, those men and women in charge, they had to be there, and they were going to start working on this problem. Except... <laughs> Uh, As they went around the room the first week, every one of them gave glowing reports about how wonderful things were in their department. Not a problem at all. Everything's great. It's like, wow, okay, that's weird. Uh, He comes back the next week. The same thing happens. This goes on for a month, four weeks. And in his own mind, he's thinking, now wait a minute, we're about to lose $12 billion. We're on the edge of bankruptcy, but there's no problems here? So halfway through uh, the next meeting, he actually stopped him in the middle and basically said that, does no one have a problem here? And no one said a word. (laughs) Till finally at the next week, one of the guys thought he would muster up enough courage and take this huge risk of admitting that he had a problem in his department. So sure enough, went around and all the others, not a problem, not a problem, not a problem, well, I've got a problem. Now, everyone else in the room, apparently this cutthroat place that was Ford at the time, we're going, sucker, <laughs> you fell for it. You're going to be the first one to get hacked out of here. And you know what? What? To, what parting gift should I give him or something like that? That's, that's what everyone was thinking. But Alan Mulally actually applauded, and he wasn't being sarcastic. He meant it. He was like, great, finally we have one problem that we can look at, and so how could everybody help? Let's get some ideas. How can you help with this problem? Everybody, so they went around the room, and what could you do to help with this problem? And how could they, as a team, get Ford Motor Company moving again, pun intended, because they were about to go over the edge? It was amazing. And people started to believe that maybe there was just a little crack in the door, and maybe... We really have an atmosphere of trust here. Could it be? And sure enough, it started to snowball, and before long, everybody was bringing in reports. They couldn't wait to tell and be honest, if you will, the problems that they had in each of their departments. And while that wasn't uh, the only factor by any stretch, uh, many people look back and would say that that was the key turning point when people finally started fessing up, if you will, to the problems that they had that they might actually work on them and get them fixed. And it worked so well, and again, many other factors for sure, that not only did they, not, they did lose $12 billion that year still, and $14 billion, I think, the next year or the year after. But before long, things turned around, and now Ford's the number one selling car in America. And it was largely, again, that was not the only thing, but the turning point was when the trust factor finally came to Ford Motor Company. So what does that have to do with us here in the church? Well, again, the generic point here is that when you have a problem, it doesn't go away by ignoring it but by acknowledging it and then marshaling resources that you have to try to fix the problem. Well, in the church, we all acknowledge that we have a problem, and it's sin. (laughs) And we want to fix this problem in our lives and to help each other. And one of the best resources we have to marshal is one another. That's one of the main reasons God puts us in a church family, so we can be honest with one another and hopefully an atmosphere of trust where we can encourage one another in that way. Now, some of you are thinking, wait a minute, you mean actually confess sins, not just theoretically, but my sins to other people? Yep, yep, that's it. That's what God's calling us to do. Uh, Why would I do that? Well, there's at least two reasons, many reasons. One is God commands it. That's usually a pretty good reason, isn't it? Uh, God says to, James 5, 16, just very basically says, confess your sins to one another, But there's another very good reason that uh, our brother Dietrich Bonhoeffer gives us in his book, Life Together. And here's where air quotes come in handy again. The pious fellowship, the pious fellowship, get it? Sarcasm here. The pious fellowship permits no one to be a sinner. So everyone must conceal his sin from himself and from the fellowship. Sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of the unexpressed, sin poisons the whole being of a person. Wow. In other words, think of my dad. You know, he ignored the things his body was telling him, and he paid the price. When we ignore the spiritual pains that we're having and don't acknowledge it to other people we're going to pay the price, individually and as a church body. It's just how it is. So we need to stop pretending and get over ourselves and be honest. And this is a safe place. It should be because we're all saying, and we, everyone who's a member here has already said, we acknowledge that we're sinners. So it's not like you have something that everyone else doesn't have. Uh, you don't have to be embarrassed about that, in other words. But, so how do we do this? What does this really mean as a church? Uh, it's very nice to talk about it how do we actually do this well let me give you uh some ideas let's get practical on this and uh, uh figure out how to do uh confession if you will in a protestant church so here it is here's a few guidelines at least one thoughts on confessing check your heart First thing we need to do before we start doing all this is to check our own heart. Why would we do this? We aren't going to talk about sin in our lives in order to shock people or to get attention. Because that can be a motivation for some of us. Let's be honest. The only reason we're going to do this is to get help in following Christ. To be giving God the place he deserves in our life like we've talked about. That's the essence of sin. Not doing that. We want to do that. So let's get help in that. Let that be the motivation for why we would do this. Secondly... And this is very important. Find someone you trust. Find someone you trust. Even in the church, not everyone is at the point where they can handle hearing this kind of thing from you. There's at least a couple reasons for that. For some, their conscience is still too tender uh, to be able to handle hearing something like this. Uh, That's one. Uh, Another is there are still people in the church who would abuse it. So you have to be very careful about who you would go to say this kind of thing. Don't go putting it in the keeping in touch form, your deepest, darkest secrets, you know. Don't do that. Um, But hopefully with your life group, if you're in a small group, or with some friend or two that you have here in the church or outside of the church, either one, uh, there's someone that you know well enough that you know that you can trust them that you can go to them about this and that they will not condemn you. They will keep it between the two of you and they will help you find victory in it. So they won't gossip or condemn you or berate you. Final thing here is to be judicious. Be judicious in how you do this. One, don't sugarcoat it. Secondly, don't sensationalize it on the other hand. And don't make excuses for yourself and only give enough detail so that the person would know what the deal is and know enough to be praying for you, maybe to give some guidance, but then to follow up with you to see how you're doing. We don't need to give a whole lot of details, in other words, for people to know this. So just, hey, I'm struggling with this, and I'd appreciate you praying and holding me accountable for it. And any ideas you have, I'd be open to that as well. Very simple, but if we've never done it before, you know, try sticking your toe in with somebody you really know and trust well. So that's some thoughts on how to do the confession. What about when we are conf- uh, someone comes to us confessing a sin? Uh, f- first off, if someone does this, uh, take it for the precious gift that it is. Realize that if somebody is coming and sharing something like this with you, it's a statement that they trust you in the ways that we've just talked about. So this is a precious gift that someone has uh, given to you. And so treat it as such and uh, encourage them in in doing this. Now, a good test for this is to go back and to think, uh, all right, how did you handle hearing my confession of sin earlier? Uh, What went through your mind? Let's have a multiple choice uh, quiz here. Did you, ding, I knew Doug was a jerk. (laughs) Ding, and he calls himself a Christian. Ah, Pastor, no less. (laughs) You'll get the head shake thing going there. Um, Or maybe C, Doug, don't be so hard on yourself. I'd like that, but that's not what I really need. And then D, I'll pray the Lord grants you victory. D is the right answer in case you have any question. Uh, If you answered A, B, or C, would you raise your hand so we'll know not to confess to you? No, don't do that. (laughs) Don't do that. Don't do that. Um, But again, if someone comes to you sharing this, take it as the precious gift that it is and do the things that we've talked about don't be shocked don't be holier than thou don't berate them don't try to give advice even so much as just to say you'll pray for them that's what we all really need it's the most important thing we can do pray for them and then to hold them accountable by just coming back at times and asking how things are going there so in conclusion let's go back to Levi the tax collector one more time The guy with the terminal case of sin, just like we all have, who Dr. Jesus, if you will, came along and healed by calling him to follow him, and he did. Notice what Levi did in response. You know, I find it amazing. I don't know about you, but I've read this passage I don't know how many times, and this is the awesome thing about God's Word. You can read it and read it and read it, and you'll still find new things in it that are just awesome. So, I've known, yes, that God called or Christ called Levi to follow him and, uh, and that he did. and left all that behind and then he had a banquet and, all, and a party and then the fair, all that story. I missed this, though. I knew he gave a banquet, but I figured it was a celebration. I figured, and it, and it was, mind you, but just a celebration that, wow, I'm so happy that I found Christ. Or maybe it was because he wanted all his friends to find Christ, too. I'm sure both of those are true, but that's not what the Scripture says, is it? The passage actually says, Levi held a great banquet for Jesus. In other words, he was giving God the place in his life that God deserves. He held a great banquet for Jesus. Now, we don't acknowledge ourselves to be sinners because of self-loathing. We don't do it to be party poopers. We do it because we know it's true and we want to change. But more than anything else, we do it because we want our lives to be a banquet for Christ. The Westminster Shorter Catechism's first question and answer gets at what our chief end is, and it's to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So there's a real sense in what our real motivation in acknowledging all this stuff is And so that more and more we turn away from the rejecting part and more and more we're making our lives a banquet for Christ. Your day today can be a banquet for Christ as you give it to him and let him have it in a sense. So let's more and more as a church find out how we can help each other to glorify and enjoy him forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how we thank you so much for this, again, this great privilege of uh, being part of a church family and uh, what you did to get us into it. And so, Lord, I pray that uh, we as, uh, uh, as Stonebridge Church would more and more put this into practice and that, uh, Lord, we would be finding greater and greater victory over sin in our lives. We want our lives to be uh, fragrant aroma to you. We want our lives to be glorifying and honoring to you, to say thank you for all the wonderful blessings that we have in you. And, and Lord, this is one way to do it. So would you move in us? May we be characterized more and more as a church who acknowledges our sin and finds victory over it. In Christ's name we pray, amen.